0: Psalm 68 this evening, as was read a moment ago, Psalm 68. The superscription of Psalm 68 tells us that this is a psalm of David, but it does not tell us when or why David wrote this psalm. So then in deducing from the themes of the psalm as we have sung this evening, as we have read this evening, Bible commentators suggest that David may have written Psalm 68 when he, he first conquered the city of Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Or perhaps David wrote this psalm when he brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Or perhaps David wrote this psalm at some other triumphal procession of, up to Jerusalem after God's people were victorious over their their enemies. And the reality is that we don't know the specific occasion for the writing of this psalm. And that leaves me a bit disappointed. Because I have so enjoyed learning a psalm in its context, going back to the Old Testament Bible narratives and understanding the occasion, the circumstances that birthed the psalms that that we've studied. However, in reading Psalm 68 over and over again, looking for a human context for this psalm, my, my attention gradually shifted to the divine character of this psalm. That is, I found this psalm to be less about man and what man has done and more about God and what God has done. In fact, the interpretive key to our study this evening, I would submit that Psalm 68 is all about God. There are at least six different Hebrew names for God found here in this psalm. They are Yah, Yahweh, Adonai, Shaddai, El, and Elohim. Furthermore, there are a number of titles for God that are found here in the psalm. Ultimately, there are 24 different attributes and activities of God that I have identified in this psalm. And I tried to capture them for you in, in your notes this evening. It covers two pages. You know what my wife said to me? She goes, oh, it looks like you're making up for this morning when your outline was a little weak. She says... My outline was, I had three points this morning, right? That's sufficient. This evening, 24, and if you need to slip to the the foyer and get a copy of the notes, 24 Attributes and Activities of God. There goes Pastor Dan to get some notes. Very good. (laughs) 24 Attributes and Activities of God found in Psalm 68. And tonight, we're going to do a bit of an exercise looking for the person of God in the scripture texts. And I want to do an exercise that is most valuable. We're going to read the scripture, we're going to look for the attributes and the activity of God and and when we are done, we may be weary of this exercise. However, I hope that we will recognize how awesome our God is. Let me pause for prayer and then we'll look at the psalm together. Lord, thank you for the privilege to gather around your holy word to read it, to study it, and to behold our God in it. God, I pray that you will show us not the circumstances of man, not the the human context, but the divine character of our awesome God here in the Scripture. We commit our study to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You might expect us to begin at the beginning, Psalm 68, verse number 1, but no, look with me at verse 35. Psalm 68, verse 35, I believe it gives us a summary of this entire psalm, namely, number one in your notes, that God is awesome. God is awesome. Verse 35, O God, you are more awesome than your holy places or in your sanctuary. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. Number one, God is awesome. Imagine seeing God on his throne in his holy place or sanctuary. What would you see? What would you say? What would you do? Of course, Isaiah was given a vision of God on his throne in Isaiah 6. The heavenly beings surrounding the throne said, Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then Isaiah responded saying, Woe is me. And he confessed, I am a man of unclean lips. And then he answered saying, Send me. Here am I, send me. Folks, God is an awesome God. Let's go back to the beginning of the psalm now. Verse number one, we'll work through it a verse at a time. Psalm 68, verse number one. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him. I would give you number two God is on the move. God is awesome, number one. God is on the move, number two. If we were to read ahead verses 4 through 18, we could follow God's activity, his motion to accomplish so much for his people. For example, just I'll, I'll cherry pick a few things here. Look at verse number seven. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, verse number 10, the second part of verse number 10, oh God, provi- you, oh God, provided from your goodness. For the poor. Look at verse 14. When the Almighty scattered kings in it. So God is on the move. He's active. And sometimes we question whether God is alive or if he's awake or if he's aware of our circumstances. Where is God when I needed him? Why won't God do something about my situation? Is God passively neglecting all that is going on in the world today? Yesterday and today, you understand my reference to the, to the war that has begun in the Middle East. Why does God allow wickedness to prevail? Why doesn't he intervene? God is on the move. Look at verse number two. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. You see the imagery here? The power of the wind that blows the smoke away. Think of the forest fires that occur to our west or to our north in Canada. And as the wind blows that smoke across the state of Minnesota. Think of the power of a flame to wax, to, to melt wax when it's near. I'll give you number three. God is powerful. He's awesome. He's on the move. He's powerful there in verse number two and other verses. In fact, God is so powerful that his presence causes his enemies to perish. Why should God's presence be a comfort and a strength to us? Because his presence is powerful there in verse number two. God is powerful. Verse 3. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Number 4. God gives joy. God gives joy. And there's a stark contrast between verses 2 and 3. For the wicked perish at the presence of God in verse 2. But the righteous rejoice in verse 3. Because God's favor is upon them. Verse number 4. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds by his name Yah, and rejoice before him. Note the reference to the clouds here. We're going to find the same language of the clouds and of the heavens. Look at verses 8 and 9. The earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O God, sent a plentiful rain whereby you confirmed your inheritance, that, that your people, when it was weary. Look to verses 33 and verse 34. To him who rides on the heaven of heavens, which indeed were of old, indeed he sends out his voice, a mighty voice, Ascribe strength to God, his excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. What is verse 4 and 8 and 9 and 34, 33 and 34 telling us about God? Number 5, it's telling us that God is God alone. Now you say, okay, Pastor Matt, I've been tracking with you so far, but in what way do these verses tell us that God is God alone? The reference to the clouds and the rain and the heavens. This is a direct confrontation and refutation of the God of the Canaanites named Baal. By calling God the one who rides on the clouds in verse 4. The one who controls the rain in the heavens, verses eight and nine. The one who is in the heavens, verses thirty-three and thirty-four. The psalmist is declaring that God is the only true God. You say, well, well, why is that? Let me give you an example. When Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in First Kings seventeen and eighteen, Elijah put forward a test of bringing down fire from, from heaven. And then when Elijah confronted King Ahab in 1 Kings 18 and 19, he called upon God to bring down rain from where? From heaven. And the point is, in both of those illustrations with Elijah, Baal is not the God of heaven. God is the God of heaven, the one who controls the clouds, the one who is above. Israel's God is the only true God. We learned something else about God in verse number 4. I read it quickly. That would be... Number six in your notes, God keeps his covenants. God keeps his covenants. You say, well, where do you see that? How do I come to that conclusion from verse number four? David uses a name for God in verse number four. My New King James translates it Yah, capital Y, capital A, capital H. It may be translated in your English Bibles, capital L O R D. Yah or Yahweh or Lord is the covenant name that God gave himself uh, to his people Israel. That covenant name, God keeps his covenant. Look at verse number 5. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. This is an easy one. Number 7, God cares for the fatherless. It's profound to think that the God of the universe cares about the orphan child. But James tells us pure and undefiled religion is this. Before God is to visit the orphans in their trouble because the heart of God cares for the fatherless. Furthermore, number number eight, God defends the widows. God defends the widows. You see it there in verse 5 as well. He's a father of the fatherless. He's a defender of the widows. It's profound to think that the God of the universe cares about widows. And again, I would cite what James said. Pure and undefiled religion before God is this, to visit the widows in their trouble. The widows and the orphans. And folks, God's care for orphans and widows is recurring throughout all of the Bible. And those who care for orphans, perhaps foster care, perhaps um, for orphans, foster care or for maybe adoption, and those who care for the widows and serving them and supporting them. You are the, the heart and the hands of God in that activity. Verse number six God sets the solitary in families. I would offer you this number nine God loves the lonely. Do you ever feel like you're in solitary confinement, socially, relationally? Perhaps you're homeless, without family or friends who care about you. Know that God cares, and he puts you in a family. I think in many cases, your church family may be as much family to you as your physical family in many many cases. God loves the lonely. Also from verse number 6, He sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Number 10, God rescues the captives. God rescues the captives. And I I like the comparative contrast in verse number 6. Look at verse 6. God loves the lonely, and he rescues the captives, but the rebellious. Do you see them there at the end of verse 6? They're, they're on their own. They're out in the cold, as it were. They're in a dry, desolate land. Let that be a warning to us. Number, verse number 7 Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, let's stop and think about this now. Think about God leading. Israel through the wilderness, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. Verse eight. The earth shook, the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O God, sent a plentiful rain whereby you confirmed your inheritance, that's that's your people when it was weary. What does this describe? Is it not a picture of God's provision for his people in the wilderness? Number 11, God provides for his people. Now, what did God do for his people when they were thirsty in the wilderness? You say, I don't really remember rain in the wilderness. I only remember when he gave them water out of the rock. That was my first thoughts. But turn with me back, or I'm sorry, ahead... To Psalm 77. Psalm 77, and let me show you something that maybe you had forgotten. There was an occasion, a couple occasions, when God gave water out of a rock. However, Psalm 77, verse 16 The water saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about, a reference to lightning. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled, shook. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters. Your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God's provision for his people When they needed water. And it wasn't only water. How about when they were hungry in the wilderness? He gave them food. Where did that food come from? From heaven above. This manna that rained down. And God sustained a nation for 40 years in the wilderness. God provides for his people. Let me read back in Psalm 68, verses 8 and 9 again. The earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. As I read verses 8 and 9, what does this tell us about God? What does this teach us about God? How about number 12? God rules over nature. God rules over nature. Turn with me to the book of Job. Back just a bit, the book of Job. Let me show you how that God rules over nature. Job 38, verse 22. Job 38, verse 22. Have you entered the treasury of snow, or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Verse 25, Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water or a path for the thunderbolt to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man, to satisfy the desolate waste and cause the spring to spring forth to grow of tender grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? These are are rhetorical questions that point us to God. Verse 34, can you lift up your voice to the cloud that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to you, here, they, here we are? This is, this is God asking Job, who controls nature? Verse 36, who has put wisdom in, in the mind? Who has given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can pour out the bottles of heaven when the dust hardens in clumps and the clods cling together? Who does these things? God does. He rules over nature. Back to Psalm 68. We've come to verse 12. Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home divides the spoil. Number 13. God rules over nations. God rules over nations. Folks, do not fret about the chaos and the conflict among nations. God rules. Russia and Ukraine, Hamas and Israel, what is going to happen there? Will the United States get involved? Will Iran get involved? Is this the beginning of World War III? God rules over the nations. Verse 13, Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow and zelmon. Okay, this is a little cryptic at first. What's being said here? It may be a reference to Judges 5 verse 16 where some of Israel were not supportive of the conquest of Canaan and they slept among the sheep rather than going to war. They they were draft dodgers, if you will. And yet God blessed the dove, a reference to Israel, with the spoils of silver and gold. And when the Almighty conquered the kings of Israel, it was like the benefit of, of snow and the precipitation that that provides. I, I would put it this way. Number 14, God rules over man. God rules over man. That, that's what's happening here. Verse 15, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. Okay. What is the mountain of Bashan? It's really not a mountain. It's multiple mountains. It's a mountain range, multiple peaks to the north of Bashan. We know it as Mount Hermon. Yet God didn't choose the mountains of Bashan or Mount Hermon. God chose Mount Zion, Jerusalem, as his place to put his name and for worship. And Jerusalem is relatively small. It's a small hill. It's like Buck Hill. You know the place south of the cities here? It's like Buck Bump is really all that it is, right? But if you're from Minnesota, that's about as good as it gets. That, that Jerusalem is something very modest compared to the high peaks of those mountain ranges. But here is the point The point in verses 15 and 16 is that God dwells with us. That's number 15 in your notes. God dwells with us. This is the place that God desires, verse 16, to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. That's Mount Zion, Jerusalem. Psalm 132, you might put this in the margin. Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14 says, For the Lord has chosen Zion he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. If for no other reason we value Jerusalem, is because that's the place that God has chosen to put his name. Of course, today it's the most disputed piece of real estate in all of the world. I wonder why. Right? But that's where God has chosen, and God will then dwell with us there. Verse 17 the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place. Number 16 God commands his armies. And God is portrayed here as a commander of the heavenly host of thousands of chariots. And what does a commander do with his armies? He conquers. Verse number 18, you have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Number, where are we at? 17, I'm a little weak on my Roman numerals now that we're deep, deep into them, right? Uh, um, Number, um, I guess we're number 17, God conquers his... His enemies also there in verses 21 and 22. God will wound the head of his enemies. Um, And you see it there also in verse 22 and verse 23. God conquers his enemies. Um, He commands his armies, number 16. He conquers his enemies, number 17. When a commander or a king conquered the enemy, the commander or the king would come home with the spoils of war and enjoy those things. If you think back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, Moses charged Israel, So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant when you were eaten and filled. After the conquest of, of Canaan land, The people enjoyed the spoils of those things. But then also in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul used Psalm 68, verse number 18, when he wrote Ephesians 4, verse 8. And we're not going to take the time there to, to do the cross-reference and understand Paul's um, teaching there in Ephesians 4. But, but Paul applied the idea of Christ's victory over the forces of Israel in granting spiritual gifts there in Ephesians 4 to those on his side. And there's an analogy that, there that, that Paul used emphasizing the believer's spiritual victory in Christ and the benefit of victory when Christ, our captain, conquers and the gifts that he can distribute. Number, what are we at now? 18, is that where we're at? Number 18, God bears our burdens. In your notes, number 18, God bears our burdens, and I would point you to verse number 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation, Selah. God bears our burdens. I I think of the famous poem, Uh, Footprints in the Sand. You familiar with that? That poem, the, the last stanza says that God whispered, My precious child, I love you, and I will never leave you, never ever during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Verse 19, Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. Where he bears us up, the God of our salvation. Stop and think about that. Our God is the God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Number 19, God saves our souls. He saves our souls, very simply. Jump to verse 24. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. You can compare that back to verse number one. Let God arise. And this procession is coming forward, and, and God is arriving there in, in Jerusalem, verse 24. And, and I would offer this number 20, God is our king. And notice the, the possessive pronoun, the personal pronoun, my king, in verse 24. The procession of my God, my king, into the sanctuary. In verses 26 and 27, look there, he describes Israel's tribes from the north and from the south. Verse 29, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring presents to you. Rebuke the beasts of the reeds, the herds of the bulls with the calves of the people. To everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hand to God, These verses are giving us a prophetic picture of the kings being drawn to worship God. In fact, all the nations are being drawn to worship God. Number 21, God draws people to himself. In the animals that are cited there in verse 30, it may describe different people, groups. For example, the bulls representing Egypt's strength. But God is drawing people to himself in his victory as he conquers. They come to pay homage and to present gifts. Verse 32, sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord, Selah. That's number 22. God deserves man's praise. God deserves man's praise. And this was a theme from Psalm 67, you remember, the doxological purpose of God, so that all the peoples may praise him. That's where human history is headed. That's where things will conclude, in the praise and the worship of of God. Number 23, God is authoritative in his word. How so, when God speaks, verse 33, to him who rides on the heaven of the heavens, which were of old, indeed he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Of course, that voice is the cause of all creation of the heavens and the earth. Finally, verse 35, O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. Number 24, if you've kept up, God gives strength to his people. Folks, what do we do with all of this? Imagine with me that you are in conversation with someone. Maybe you're in conversation with yourself. And the conversation goes like this. Who is God? Maybe the question is asked, what is God like? How do you answer? What theology do you have to answer the question, who is God or what is God like? Could you come up with 24 points of God's attributes and his activity that can be traced back? Perhaps not to circumstances in Israel's history, whatever circumstances are being referenced here. Perhaps occasions in your own life. You say, well, let me tell you who who God is like, not from biblical history, but from my own experience. He's provided for me. He's protected me. He has comforted me. He has shown himself mighty to me. Perhaps you could write a psalm yourself of the attributes and the activities of God and that practical Theology. We, we look at our circumstances in life. We most often see the human agents and the human actors in those circumstances. We don't often or always see God. We interpret positive circumstances as, as being fortunate or lucky. We dodged a bullet or we got a break. We were rewarded for our labor with success. The times we look at negative circumstances as unfortunate or unlucky... We dropped the ball, or we had an accident, or we failed to win. Okay, what that, that perspective on life does is it looks to man's circumstance and man's context rather than the divine character of God in those circumstances. We don't know the historic context or circumstance for Psalm 68. There are hints and a lot of references to the wilderness wandering and, and God's provision at that time or to the triumphal entries into the city of Jerusalem after conquering their, their enemies. But at the end of the day, this is not about man's circumstance but about God's character. Who is God? Where is God? What is God doing today? Let's pray. God in heaven, we bow our heads before you, acknowledging that you are the one true only living God, that you are our creator, you are our redeemer, you are our sustainer. God, we bow our heads and, and we worship you for who you are. Lord, 24 points is, is hardly enough to scrap, scratch the surface of the depth of your character and your activity And so, Lord, we worship you for who you are. I pray that we might daily be mindful of how awesome you are. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.